Welcome to the Movement Podcast. This show is all about movement. We tackle it from different angles, bring on guests, answer questions, go on a few tangents, and give practical advice, giving you guys a better idea of how you can optimize the human body to be the best it can be. Let me give you a preview of what's coming up in this episode. We have a special guest on today's episode, Dr. Kyle Kiesel. Kyle is Program Director of Physical Therapy at the University of Evansville, a researcher and an expert in low back pain. During the first 10 minutes of the show, Kyle details his career path and his involvement early on with Gray Cook to help create the functional movement screen. Lee and Kyle discuss how inventing the movement screen may have been different if it had been done primarily in a research lab. He explains the Thomas test, how the idea of functional movement has become more mainstream over the years, and gives us some stats on musculoskeletal health problems. After the break, they go deeper into MSK health problems and their effect on the healthcare industry. We get into ACL injury prevention, fall prevention, and overall health indicators such as grip strength. All of this and more on today's episode of the Movement Podcast, powered by FMS. So really excited today. We got Dr. Kyle Kiesel um, on with us from University of Evansville. And a lot of people probably don't realize uh, Kyle has been part of the FMS family before I was even involved with FMS. Um, and Kyle was actually one of the guys that helped hire me. So he's been, along with Gray, one of my biggest mentors in this industry and, and kept kind of raised me from a pup, I would say, um, back from the time I thought I knew what I was doing and realized I had no clue um, so Kyle, uh, appreciate you coming on today. And, uh, you know, since I kind of teed you up a little bit, kind of give us your story and, and kind of how you came along and how really all three of us started, uh, working together. Shirley. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the, uh, uh don't call me Shirley. <laughs> Perfect. So, uh, yeah, we go back a ways and, uh, it is, a uh, not particularly well-known fact, uh, in our circles that we, we did hire you and now it seems like everyone's working for you. So, uh, times change, I guess. Yeah. So my story, how I got involved was really just, just pretty crazy. So I went through athletic training education, um, the old school for you athletic trainers, the old school internship program. So you basically slap some tape on your on your belt and follow an athletic trainer around for as many hours as you can and hope you pass your test. So I kind of did it the old way. So I was pretty uh, familiar with with covering sports and uh, it's what athletic trainers did. And it was it was a it was a good time. I then went on to physical therapy school. And after PT school, I started doing traveling physical therapy. And I happened to be in a, a small hospital uh, in North Carolina, Reedsville, North Carolina, of course, which uh, is right down the road from uh, from Danville, Virginia. And I went to my first continuing education class. So excited, as green as could be, found the brochure, fill it out by hand, mail it in with a check, hope I know you're coming. And I take this class and it was time for the labs. I don't really even remember. I think it was a shoulder class or something, but it was lab time. And they said, you know, go to a lab group. There was a big, tall, redhead dude in the corner and he was just saying, speaking, just had a different vibe. I'm like, that guy seems pretty smart. So I just gravitated over to, to that corner. It was one of the first classes Gray had ever taught. He was teaching a, a lab group. So I just kicked up a conversation with him, got to know him, and he had just moved back to his home 
town and had practice in Danville, Virginia. He was just getting his practice started. And he had talked a lot about manual therapy and everything he had done in manual therapy. And he got trained in Canada. So he had a, back in the day, of course, he had boots on like he always did, but he had this turtleneck on, big redhead. And I thought he was Canadian. I thought he was a Canadian dude, right? So this guy's a manual therapist, one of those smart guys. So anyway, I got to know him. He got his training in manual therapy in, in Canada. And he was looking for an athletic trainer to start outreach in the high schools in, in his area. There was no athletic trainer in the whole county. And I knew coming out of physical therapy school, I didn't know much about treating back pain. It wasn't particularly strong in my program. And, and I realized, you know, 50% of what we do is back pain. So I either got to lean into it and figure it out or, uh, you know, or run to the shoulder and knee people. And I just, that just didn't seem like it was me. So Gray hired me, said, you know, can you cover high school football? I said, absolutely. Can you teach me back pain? He said, no problem. So my wife and I moved to Danville, Virginia. Didn't know much about it, obviously. Give me a year or two with Gray. I'll learn backs and, and be on my way. And uh, that's how we met, started in the clinic. And sure enough, you know, how we really got going in the clinic, you know, we, we just started on our own, pretty small group. I'm just kind of getting to know people. Sports medicine, you know, it's in a Friday night rainstorm. Who's there? But, you know, a couple of loyal parents, team physician and the athletic trainer. So we're able to meet one of our uh, main physicians, Dr. Cassidy, kind of in the trenches and ended up with a really nice long-term relationship with him. So uh, it was uh, uh, it was good, certainly some good good times back then. And as we grew, then brought on Lee to head up the athletic training uh, side of things and uh, really hired several PTs and really grew the practice over those years. So it was, it was exciting. So Kyle, uh, kind of give us that, you know, your background, you know, early on, but even now, kind of where you where you've gone grown into is is really a researcher and what I would say an expert in in low back pain so kind of give it give me a little bit more uh, or all of us uh, an idea from you know where when you left working with us in, in small town to to where you are now and, and kind of that that kind of path sure I just had an interest in in research and and always did and uh, after Five years in the clinic, things were, were, were going well, but I just knew I wanted to get more training because I, I just was reading research papers and realizing I don't know what they're talking about. You know, So uh, it was one of those deals where you had to go join them. So I, I looked into some PhD programs, ended up getting my first academic job at the University of, of Evansville. Well, if I can start in academics, get started there, find a PhD program, still kind of ultimately get to that goal of, of being an academic and, and being a researcher – so I started out in Evansville, and I, I actually started the crediting uh, accreditation program for their athletic training program. So it was PT, but they had an internship program for years, and it was time to flip that over to, to accreditation. So I started out uh, administering a program and then got right into a PhD program. And I always had an interest in, in back pain after working with Gray and, and all the things we were doing together. And Gray showed me this little test where they picked up somewhere, multifidus test. He's like, man, you just do this little thing, and you can feel the multifidus muscle contract or not contract and we're palpating for the multifidus and it just it was not a clear pattern some patients it was problem some it wasn't and at about that time this is 1995 maybe 1996 and about that time Paul Hodges and other researchers from his group in Australia were just starting to publish this motor control theory looking at deep muscle activation and I was just intrigued that that there was ways to to look at these deep muscles and how they worked. And Greg kept me grounded in the movement model and, you know, can they touch their toes? And Hodges had me down in the weeds looking at the multifidus, can it thicken? And and so I had these different kind of competing, uh, I guess, theories <laughs> the whole way through. And it really helped me because when you read, 
you read people's information, you can really get into that theory and where they come from. And it was incredible. The, uh, uh, their treatments were different. You know, Paul was down in the weeds on one muscle. Gray was looking at toe touch, but they're, but they had much more similarity in their approaches and they're really how they looked at movement as a whole. So knowing that we could potentially measure uh, muscles, I, I learned how to use ultrasound imaging uh, and developed a technique validated through EMG to measure thickness change in the multifidus little muscle on the screen to see if it got thicker, was it actually contracting and how we would use that in back pain. So uh, anytime you dig into a PhD, of course, you know, you just, you spend so much time going deep, right? You, you learn all the literature, you got to be up on everything. And I still have this memory of, uh, and Lee, I'm sure you remember this as well, of going into that defense, um, your oral defense of, of your, um, your dissertation topic. And I have this, this vivid memory and fear from my director that she very subtly said, well, you know, obviously you're up to date on your literature. I'm like, well, of course. She said, up to date that morning, meaning you got to check PubMed that day, that morning of your defense to be sure <laughs> nothing new is published. So uh, those are great times. I learned uh, learned a lot, learned how to research, learned about it. And, and really probably what helps me as much as anything else now, as I've been in academics for 20 years at the university, is, is we teach our physical therapy students how to appraise and utilize or consume the research. So doing it's one thing, but teaching others the process of how to look at an article, determine its validity, determine how can you glean that information what does it really mean is, is extremely important. There's just so many studies out there now. And the reality, most people think maybe 10 to 15 percent are actually worth even applying. So you do have to have a certain skill set to be able to uh, to critically appraise a, a paper. And I think that's probably helped me as much as anything over the years is being involved in that from a teaching perspective. Well, I think you said something right there, that I, Kyle, that I think is pretty important, especially if you just talk about just, you know, the general professional out there trying to you know, sift through all the information. And let's be honest, you know, every, everybody's an expert on the internet um, and being able to just, you know, sift through all that information. And we go back to kind of where, you know, we started with the SFMA and the FMS. I mean, you know, from your perspective now, looking back, I mean, with all the, all the knowledge you have now, you know, give me your kind of, I guess, for lack of a better word, thoughts on, we weren't researching the FMS or SFMA. We just threw it out there. And, Almost like, you know, was that a good thing to do? I mean, or is the route of traditional route, like go through the research, do everything the way it's supposed to be done? Because, I mean, you did one of the first research articles on the FMS 10 years after we, you know, involved in developing the FMS. So, I mean, what, what, what is the right way or is there a right way? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a tough, that's a tough question. I think. You that's know, why I'm asking the we... smart guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, the way the FMS evolved was very organic. I mean, it's just got a, it's got so much value that it was really, I mean, so, sort of a joke, but it was cooked up in the basement, right? I mean, it was we we did it in, the, in mornings uh, before clinic, and we kicked it around with just trying to problem solve and think. And I think if you look back at at at, at inventions, it's like when we start putting people from different backgrounds in the same room and start trying to problem solve together and think through things. Good things can happen. I mean, if we were to start in a lab and try to validate a movement screen today, it would look quite different. I mean, that process would be very different. I think the creativity would be gone. And I think we would have missed some of the the elegant pieces that the FMS captures for those that understand it and know how to use it uh, appropriately. And honestly, the research, I mean, we just stumbled into it, right? So we had 
people using the movement screen out in um, sports primarily. And, and the first studies, the genesis, the first study was from a strength coach in professional football that said, listen, I'm, I'm just a strength coach, but it sure seems to me that I'm finding this pattern of people that are really hurt, the ones that are out for several weeks on the disabled list and the ones that maybe don't get hurt or don't get hurt as badly. There's a, there's a difference. He said, looks like on your tests are scoring lower. The ones that are getting hurt more, these longer injuries, the, the, the long time, time frame, kind of more severe injuries. And so that was our first crack at, well, let's take a look at that. And at that point, uh, I didn't have a whole lot of experience with injury risk studies. I mean, that was just a little pilot study. Uh, that we put together and we saw a little tendency in something. And, and um, I don't know, that study, <laughs> it's a good question, good or bad. I mean, certainly it's not the most robust. I'll be the first one to admit that. Uh, we And if you read it, if you actually read it, that's what's in there. So this is, you know, essentially pilot data. There may be something here. And uh, from there, I, I started to collaborate with others and like with most research, started meeting other people, learning more, and, and we were able to grow and do more with it. But probably the biggest thing that we learned as we looked at collaborating with others, particularly when we met uh, Phil Plisky, who was looking at research and and how multifactorial injury really is. And at that point, it was just starting to be exposed that previous injury was such an important factor. And so we started to, to bring in multiple factors, obviously, to what we have today with, uh, with injury risk uh, tools that use multiple factors. So yeah, I don't know. If we go back and, 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 and do it again, it would be very different if if uh, if only researchers in the lab put together something like this. Uh, I, I've, I've seen it, and it just comes out and loses its creativity a little bit. No, that's a good point. I mean, and again, I think if you go back to what the intent um, was, I mean, obviously the screen came about to really just help, you know, these athletes going into the weight room and trying to trying to just identify, you know, who may not be ready to do certain activities. It, it really has turned into kind of turned into its own little thing, um, its own animal, so to speak. And I think, you know, even right now, Kyle, it seems like we, we spend just as much time today as we did at the beginning of explaining the real use of the FMS than anything. Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of good you said that. I, I just have this vivid memory of, of being in the clinic back in the day, and we were doing a lot with the Thomas test, and Grace said, you know, everybody seems to flunk the Thomas test. How, how good of a test is it? And All right, so Kyle, you got to explain. What, what does a Thomas test do? Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. So Thomas test, uh, it's it's just a simple muscle length test. So it's designed to see, it was actually uh, in pediatrics in kids, but it's designed to see if the muscles in the front of your hip and your thigh so hip flexors and, and knee extensors, if those muscles are tight, basically. So it's just designed to simply see if someone has tight hips in one kind of plane of motion. You, you basically just lie on the table on your back and pull one knee to your chest and you let the other leg down. And we just take a look to see is kind of the position of that limb to see if muscles are tight. Grace said, well, you know, everybody seems to have these, all these athletes particularly, and, and the research supports this now as well, that most, most have this positive test or basically have this hip tightness. But some of them can lunge beautifully through and others can't. Said, so if we only look at everybody on the table, we might be missing something. And that has always stuck with me in terms of, you know, how you look on the table and how you actually move through those tightnesses or apparent tightnesses or other problems you may find on the table varies a lot. And that was really one of the underlying principles or one of the just memories that I have that, that kept me believing in these movement 
type test as a good starting point or screens or assessments because what you see on the table may or may not be important and we need a way to figure that out. So uh, that really stuck with me. And yeah, the purpose, I mean, really the purpose when we started was to go help the kids at the high school. And that's who we were working with. Uh, we had two or three high schools we work with and we just tried to keep them healthy. And so it was just a really screen movement. The injury thing came up later and, um, you know, we could talk all day about that. It's gone, it's gone, uh, you know, and, and maybe not necessarily for the good, but it's just gone. Uh, so worldwide people are using it somewhat inappropriately, but uh, I am comfortable with where we are with that. And we've got plenty of information on our site in terms of, of how you would use our tools in an appropriate manner to, uh, to identify injury risk. So, yeah. One thing you, you say, Kyle, that, that, Again, I think what resonates a lot, it's a, it's an old image of you and one of the PTAs laying on the table, pulling your legs up to your chest. Um, and both the images look pretty similar. And then when you stand up and you both do squats, there's two totally different squats. And I think that back back then, I mean, I'm coming out of a traditional athletic training background, be very pretty much reactive, wait for somebody to get hurt, get thrown into the clinic with you and Gray and again, even with my limited knowledge of, and I'll say this, of rehab in a traditional setting because of my athletic training background, it is isolated testing, isolated training. And then, and then again, like you said, on the table, what you see on the table is not how people move. And I tell this story a lot, and, and you may or may not remember this, but I had, a, I had an, um, one of my high school, a really good running back at the time. And of course, anytime I'd have a problem, I'd, I'd load him up in my car and bring him over to let you and Gray help me figure out um, what was wrong with him. Um, and a kid couldn't even do a quad set, but yet on Friday nights, he could run like he's running 10 times better than everybody else. So just that, that perspective um, was very, you know, for me, very different than what I was taught. Yeah, for sure. And, and no disrespect. I mean, we've learned a lot over the years and, and um you know, athletes compensate in amazing ways. It can make us look pretty good when you stick them out in the field, whether maybe they belong there or not. So, uh, yeah, I do remember that case. Incredible. He had an effused knee every week and we just keep treating it. And the kid to go out and just perform incredibly well at that level. So things have changed a lot. You know, I think it's interesting to see where they've gone and, and how we've been able to see people incorporate uh, a little bit more of a movement approach into what they do. Yeah. It seems to move, you know, this idea, uh, I feel like back in the you know, 90s, it was, you know, gravitating away from isolated training, isokinetic devices were the rage in the late 80s, early 90s, got into what, quote unquote, functional training. And I, it does seem to me, and, and from your perspective in, in the physical therapy world, Kyle, it does seem to me that this idea of movement has become more mainstream. Oh, no doubt about it. People, you know, from from a variety of perspectives, people just throw the, some will just throw the word in there and, and keep doing isolated things. And others have have real nice models where you do care about how things work together and work in a synergistic way. In fact, if anything, it, it certainly changed the way we at least exercise with patients. I think people are a, a little more attentive to a whole body approach and to how things do work together. Now, I, I think we still have a long ways to go in terms of individualizing programs for people from that perspective. But but yeah, it's it's abs absolutely changed uh, changed a lot, and you know we got a long ways to go though. I, I not to get into the weeds on statistics, but as of now, musculoskeletal health problems overall are uh, the biggest expense for insurance companies, and literally fifty percent of the adult population, one hundred twenty five million people, have a musculoskeletal problem today. So, 
you know, things are changing, but, <laughs> you know, from a bird's eye view, we got a long ways to go. And there's clear data that musculoskeletal health problems are becoming more and more prevalent or becoming more common, right? Um, so I think uh, part of uh, hope, we hope part of this answer is is how people move and, and putting those things together. But it's 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 um, a little scary when you look at the stats. We got a long ways to go. Yeah, Kyle, we're, we're, that's, that's awesome because that's a great segue into our next segment. I think our next segment, we're definitely going to dive into healthcare and the cost and how, you know, musculoskeletal injuries are leading that that cost uh, thing right now. And then, of course, what, what can we do to help that out? So we'll take a quick break and uh, we'll come back and dive into that. Pain changes movement. The SFMA is a structured, repeatable, movement-based diagnostic system that healthcare professionals use with patients experiencing pain. The SFMA is built around seven fundamental movement patterns and integrates a concept known as regional interdependence, how seemingly unrelated problems are actually driving the dysfunction and causing pain. By understanding which patterns to assess further, the clinician develops a differential diagnosis, identifying mobility versus motor control dysfunctions, which allows them to create a more efficient treatment plan. The SFMA is the first system to include diagnosis of motor control dysfunction and provide a systematic approach to reteach the brain proper movement using the neurodevelopmental perspective. Using the SFMA logic, clinicians know exactly where to target their treatments and can easily retest for effectiveness of treatment to return a patient to their activities. Get started today and find a course near you. So Kyle, thanks again for coming on. And, and, and uh, we kind of left the last segment going into some stats and, and healthcare. And, and, you know, certainly I, ha- I had zero thought in my head about the impact that ultimately we may have um, with the FMS and the SFMA and, and us teaching and providing education the way we do now on healthcare in general. Um, but I think with, with your expertise and where you are right now, Certainly, you have a, a, a looking at stats and looking at how the healthcare industry and the, the where it, everything is going. I think there is some opportunity for us to have a positive impact. And just from where you are, Kyle, how, what are your thoughts on the best practices right now? How, what do we need to be doing? Well, yeah, good question. I mean, the, the bottom line is that musculoskeletal health problems are growing. They're still growing. They're getting worse. Um, the prevalence is going up. And when you say musculoskeletal health or MSK, it's a very broad term. Uh, it, it, you know, most people are going to think right away of arthritis, and that is one of the biggest problems is arthritis. The next thing you think about is back pain and neck pain. And when you take arthritis and back pain and neck pain, you just, you just captured a, a large percent of musculoskeletal health problems um, that are out there. So uh, I think what's happening, and this is just a, happens in a lot of industries, is um, you know, we're, just, we're just too specialized, right? Uh, the arthritis people get in the weeds and try to deal with what's going on at that local level. And the back pain people are in the weeds only looking at, at back pain and all the different sequelae of that. There's so many different perspectives, but they're all still quite narrow. And so when you look at these panels and the millions of dollars that have gone in to try to solve these problems, they're all very hyper-specialized people. Um, and if you really get out there and think about solving hard problems, it's usually a generalist that's going to have a solution. It's we got to get to the fringes and work with experts and get some different thinking, get people together to solve those problems. And I think that's what we've always tried to do at FMS. You know, we've always brought in outside perspectives. And, and rather than thinking about the micro piece of the knee, we want to start, can you touch your toes? And that's what I, it's the analogy I always use. Well, hey, can they touch their toes? And it's a starting point. So 
we got a long ways to go, but I think from a musculoskeletal health perspective, just covering some fundamental movements can be extremely powerful to know wh- where that person is and what they need to do next. And uh, uh, I, I think you can you can think about musculoskeletal health problems as as being so multidimensional. I mean, uh, an arthritis just doesn't show up. There's other things, and we we say comorbidities. That's the real common term you hear today for that. But you know, if you're if you don't like your job and uh, you're uh, not exercising and you're a little overweight, uh, you're at risk for musculoskeletal health problems. Right? Everything's connected. So the the approaches to solve these big problems have to come from a, a much broader behavioral perspective. Uh, I think those are the things we can do with some of our movement tools because we think movement, certainly, well, we believe movement is an ex- ex- expression of your health, of your overall health, and, and movement essentially in itself is a behavior. So when you think about movement as an expression of health, it's a window into the system to see what we need to do next. And those are the big picture things that, that we're working on from a variety of, of aspects. Yeah, I mean, if you, you look at something that, you know, especially in the sports performance world that people are trying to tackle. And I was talking to a colleague just last week um, that they, they're developing this huge program on ACL prevention. And ACL prevention is, you know, been talked about for, shoot, Kyle, I think when I was, you know, starting as an ATC, huge dollars going into ACL prevention research still happening. But you know what? How much has it really impacted ACL tears, right? And I think – you know, you get those people that, you know, ACL prevention turns into, let's see what we need to do with the knee. Let's see what we need to do with the quote unquote hip, um, the quote unquote core, um, all those things. And they forget to look at the big picture many times. Yeah, for sure. And it is unfortunate. There's been a lot of smart people tried to crack the nut of ACLs. And uh, there are a couple studies that show with, with group programs, you can make some changes, but at the end of the day, you know, if things don't get individualized, I just don't believe that that you're really going to see those those big true changes. Everyone's just a little different, right? And uh, so, being able to individualize things um, is always going to going to be an a, extremely important point. But you know, ACLs creeps up in the musculoskeletal world kind of um, literature as a world problem, and and where it comes up is why do some people after ACLs develop uh, knee arthritis and others don't. <laughs> so it actually ends up coming back to arthritis as being a much bigger problem from a disability and cost perspective over time. Well, Kyle, well, even even that, I think what you could, I mean, could you uh, allude to take from that if, it, if arthritis summons some, it goes back to what you were saying before is behavioral issues being the underlying, um, you know, thing that could be creating some of that. So if, what, if, if, you know, athlete A has an ACL tear, athlete B has an ACL tear, 15, 20 years later, one has arthritis, one doesn't. Well, you, you know, could that be attributed to the behaviors of those individuals? Yeah, there's just so many things that, that go into that. And uh, people are going to end up in different activity levels with different types of occupations, with different types of exercise habits. But it does come down to their individual behaviors as a whole in terms of who they are, um, how other health problems are affecting their movement and, and, and wear and tear on that knee. There's just, there's no doubt about it. So, um, you know, I, I've just for the last really long time, I've sort of gotten away from, from sports. There's so many people in the weeds in sports. If you just start looking at musculoskeletal health as a whole, there's so much that we need to do, um, from a perspective of, of youth all the way up, 
through folks as they age. So, uh, you know, we do a lot with falls. If you just think about fall prevention, everyone thinks about the elderly and, and things on you know, someone on a walker or someone on a cane. But you know, around 50 is a good time to start picking up precursors for people who are going to fall because those precursors are also related to other problems. Right? It's a, to me, it's just all one big continuum. Uh, we need tools to to crack into those things much earlier than we than we do now. Yeah, when you say behavior, I mean, kind of let's dive into that a little bit, Kyle. So, you know, one thing I, I look at, and, and I think it's pretty interesting um, in the research. And again, you correct me if I'm wrong here, because I'm, I'm a pseudo PhD guy. Um, is you know grip strength being something that really is a good representation of overall health, and I would argue behavior. So, if a person who has a, who has good grip strength, a lot of the research out there, data that would suggest. That person is going to be healthier, live longer, less likely to have chronic disease. And again, that doesn't mean that person has um, that person is quote unquote fit. They just got good grip strength. But what does grip strength represent? Again, it, I would say that grip strength represents their behaviors. So when you talk about movement representing someone's behaviors, give us a little bit more insight in your opinion on that. Well, yeah, no, I appreciate the grip strength um, comment um, because. Grip strength to me is an expression. I would I would even say just overall health because if you have problems in other areas, problems to your core, problems in your neck, problems etc., your grip's going to be down. The the simple solution people try to think about is because of something like grip strength being a, a predictor, literally a predictor of longevity, that they supplement grip strength, and that's just that's just a mistake. I mean, I think if you listen to to Greg Cook speak at all, you, you sort of understand that where where we're coming from with that. But the other thing relative to movement that's a predictor very similar to grip strength is can you simply from sitting on the ground can you get up without using your arms without pushing with your arms? So basically, can you get down on the floor and can you get back up? Let's just say that. Just the ability to to do that is another holistic sort of predictor of, of health. So I do think it speaks to how the systems work together and certainly that when one component of the movement system, which is so complex, is problematic, then the whole system is problematic and, and, and those things need to be addressed. So yeah, what you're describing, Kyle, is really things that can give us insight into what can tell you, you know, your overall health, whether it's, you know, as you said, getting up from the floor, getting, you know, getting down and get up from the floor without using your arms, whether it's grip strength. But I mean, the, ultimately, even in your world as a researcher, it's still, what do you do? What, what do you do about that issue? If I can't get up and get down, you know, from floor, my grip sucks. Then the next question is always gonna be, okay, what do I do about it? And I think that's where, you know, I think practically speaking is kind of where we've been trying to go for a while, right? Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think I would say that it's a better question really to come from a clinical perspective than a research perspective. I would say what a, a researcher would want to do is something that we probably shouldn't do would be supplement grip, right? <laughs> you know, uh, let's randomize poor grip people and work on their grip and see if they live longer. Like that's missing the entire point of, of that risk factor or that biomarker. Someone with with a with a grip problem below a standard, and particularly an asymmetry, that's an indicator to me that they have a health problem. They need they need to be assessed, right? We need to figure out why, because there's so many reasons why your grip could be down. And neck pain and neck dysfunction and neck movement problems and upper back thoracic movement problems, I would put very high on the list. And there are many other things. So uh, it just to me is it, it's just a it's a sign or it's it's like a screen that something's wrong, and we need to get get in and figure it out because. For 100 people that have grip strength deficits, there's going to be a lot of different reasons that are, that um, underpin that. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, you can't under, 
underestimate the power of a lot of their lifestyle, the behavior, the things that you were alluding to as well. I mean, whether that's sleep, whether that's nutrition, um, all those things are going to impact it. I think, you know, uh, you know, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the first step is trying to identify kind of what bucket you're in. Once we figure out what bucket you're in, are you in a, are you in the good side or the bad side, so to speak? And then again, it's, it's trying to, trying to create a very, you know, as easy as possible way to figure out how to really crack that nut. Right. Yeah. I think you hit a really important point there. I mean, the very first thing is, is what sort of help do you need or can you do it on your own? That's the way we look at things. So it's just so frustrating when we see so many people that try to start a quote exercise program or they're going to get fit. Right. And they go to the Y and, and no disrespect, but they, sort of work through the machines at the Y or they try to start a running program or they try to start swimming. And sure enough, they end up in the clinic with some type of musculoskeletal injury. We see it all the time. Well, it was just a poor starting point. You know, exercise is extremely important, but we've got to figure out if you're ready for that, right? So um, it is, is what's the first step? We need some sort of tool to partition people into the right bucket. And and I, you could think about two buckets, either can you do it on your own with some education and, and, and ease into it? Or do you need some professional help? I mean, those are, those are two pretty simple ways to look at it. And, you know, the early research that we have is a good, good percentage of people need professional help, whether it's at a personal training level, at a fitness level uh, profession or at a healthcare profession. And, and, and unfortunately I'll tell you, if you throw a cast of that across average population in the U S you're going to have a third or so of those folks that actually need healthcare of some kind, whether it's, musculoskeletal health, behavioral health. Um, those are probably the top two, uh, and some other systems could come into play, but that could really and honestly need, need a healthcare professional to address it. And then it gets tricky because our healthcare professionals are so narrow, right? We got a specialist for everything. So people are missing that larger picture of, of how things come together. And, um, and those are the things that we're working on. So, you know, we're known as, as movement experts and, and, and fitness people. Um, but we're going to ask you questions about nutrition. We're going to ask questions about your sleep. We're going to find out more about your behavioral health. And if you flunk those questions and you need a behavioral health expert, then that's not my role. I got to find you that person. Right. So, um, I think everyone learning to, to screen for everybody else's lane and stay in their own lane, maybe one way to think about it, but it's going to be important for us to, to move um, overall health and wellness forward in, in this, uh, in our, in our society. Yeah. I mean, I think you touched on something pretty important too. I mean, people, just the, just the general person out there is going to walk into the gym, especially, you know, right now in our environment, wanting to get more healthy and they don't know what to do. They, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, going on the internet, they're trying to find, you know, the quote unquote, you know, fitness influencer to, to tell them they need to do this exercise or that exercise. And, you know, they, they don't know. And I think it's, it's really up to us as professionals to try to give them the best advice. And the best advice sometimes is to say, Hey, you shouldn't be doing this. Let's you get you to the right person. And a lot of times that is getting them into the health professional to say, hey, you know, you've got some knee problems or back problems. We need to get those figured out. Or you're going to have bigger problems down the road. And I think that's really up to us as professionals to try to help navigate. But we can't, we, we can't expect, and we really shouldn't be just throwing people, you know, telling people to, okay, you just need to go walk in the treadmill for 20 minutes every day and everything will be fine. Because a lot of times that could be the worst thing for certain people. 
Oh yeah, no, no doubt about it. And you know, we've done a nice job of of developing screening tools for the cardiovascular factors related to that. I, I mean, in, and very basic undergrad exercise science programs teach a nice little screening to be sure the person is safe from a cardiovascular perspective to to do a cardiovascular exercise. But gosh, there's so much that goes into that, and uh, there's so many other aspects than just just the one. And I think you know we've broken up fitness into the different components, looking at muscular like flexibility, strength, cardiovascular, et cetera, but we're still missing multiple pieces because it, it, it's, it's as we go back to those behaviors and what is your biggest problem? I mean, there's so many people that have say a body mass index that's high that, that, that really one of the things that they need to do is, is lose some weight. That's really easy to say, but where you start is very different for each person. Because as we say, if, if someone just tries to start a walking program, that may not be good enough because they could have a nutritional problem or a food allergy that's been missed and they can walk all they want and it's just not going to make a difference. And so you can think of all the different scenarios that would come up with those as you individualize these solutions. And these are a lot of healthcare type problems and and good professional fitness problems that that can be addressed. Yeah. And I think the one thing all of us can do, you know, because we all can get wrapped up into our, our world, so to speak, um, whether we're experts or just, you know, focusing in on the knee or the ankle or, you know, training for the next ultra marathon or training for the next, you know, um, Spartan race, you know, to forget, okay, where do I start? You know, how do I start on this path? And again, it's, it's kind of taking just one bite at a time, you know, let's, let's look at the biggest thing right now that can help me today. And let me just try to work on that. Um, I think it's always just, you know, in my opinion, good advice. And then as you start peeling away certain things, peeling away these factors, then you can start getting a little bit more specialized as you go. But, you know, you can't get up off the couch today and, and, uh, and just go out running or walking and expect everything just to happen. I mean, you've got to be a little bit, and again, we're smarter. I mean, let's, let's face it. Most people, most everyone is smarter today. You get a lot of, you know, in some cases too much information, but let's just think about just basic things you can do to start. Yeah, I mean, I would just, if, if I guess if you had to give somebody some advice, I'd be figure out what, what's your weakest link, what's the area in your health and wellness that you need to work on the most. I mean, we've talked about this a lot. I, if you smoke, I'd probably be hard pressed to to say there's nothing more important than quit smoking, for example. And there's still a large percent in the 20s or so percent in the U.S. and worldwide smoking is still a major problem. That's just a really clear example. I think most people would probably agree with that, but you can apply that principle in other areas. I mean. If you can't touch your toes, that tells me a lot. <laughs> we can do a lot with that. If you can't bend your ankle, that tells me a lot. Um, if your nutrition is completely off, that tells me a lot. If your sleep is disrupted, that tells me a lot. And it gives us starting places. And we've always seen this at, at even if you get to a micro level with high end athletes or someone that's just trying to come up with some general wellness and make some steps. When you remove the biggest problem, everything else tends to get better right? You find the biggest problem, smoking, find the biggest problem, sleeping, and they're not sleeping because of a nutritional problem, whatever it is. Once you crack that first nut, everything starts falling into place. Then these programs can be effective. But until then, you just don't see the results and, and people will give up. So again, I, it's just a priority to find the biggest problem and work on that first and everything else starts falling into place. No, Kyle, that, that's awesome, man. And uh, listen, it's, it's certainly going to take everybody to kind of Start thinking maybe a little bit differently, thinking um, different ways. You know, it's not as simple as just going out and, and trying to eat better and, and, you know, exercise a little bit more. You know, now more than ever, we've got to put our thinking caps on a little bit more. So really appreciate the insight today, man. And uh, 
thanks for everything, and we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Hey, my my pleasure, Lee. Yeah, it's kind of fun to kind of go down memory lane and kick around some of those old uh, old experiences we had. But uh, happy to help, and uh, love to be on again. Thanks. That'll do it for this episode of the Movement Podcast. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and share it with your friends and family. If you want to learn more about our system and take the next step in your movement journey, visit us at functionalmovement.com. Until next time, be sure to move well, move often.